Would you take the Word of God and turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 21? Acts chapter 21. Uh, as you turn there, uh, we're reaching the last few chapters of the book of Acts, and uh, when you look at the missionary journeys, there's a lot that happens. Um, just Paul moving from city to city, from region to region, and when we come here to the end of the book of Acts, we really have um, the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to stand before different groups of people and, and kings and governors and and he does much of the same thing every time. He gives his testimony. He speaks of Christ. He talks about his life before Christ and his life after Christ. And uh, if you look here at Acts 21, uh, by the end of the chapter, we see that Paul is going to be arrested in the temple. Uh, then in Acts chapter 22, Paul is going to stand uh, before a Jewish mob and He's going to turn around, going to the temple, and, and say, let, let me speak a few words, and he's going to speak of Christ. Uh, in chapter 23, uh, Paul will stand before the high priest and uh, the Jewish council, the, the Sanhedrin council, and he's going to speak before them. And, and then in chapter 24, Paul's going to stand before Felix, who is the Roman governor of the region. In chapter 25, Paul will then stand before Festus, and he's going to appeal unto Caesar. And then in chapter 26, Paul's going to stand before King Agrippa. And again, he's going to give his testimony and speak of Christ. Chapter 27 will be Paul taking his journey to Rome as a prisoner. And a wonderful account there in chapter 27. And in Acts chapter 28, he's going to arrive in Rome. And so, uh, that's, um, I'm trying to count here. The last eight chapters here of the book of Acts are dedicated to those last few scenes of in Paul's life and ministry. So from now on, we're going, well, uh, leading up to uh, what we're going to find at the end of this chapter is really we, we're not lo no longer going to find the Apostle Paul in the, the freedom that he had up to this point to be able to go from city to city, preach the gospel, establish churches. Uh, these are uh, trying times for Paul, and his responses, I think, will be help to us personally. And I think that we need some help sometimes because we might look at the life of the Apostle Paul and we think, well, I just can't relate to the, he was the Apostle to the Gentiles. He was a preacher. I can't relate. He was a, a missionary, a churchman. I can't relate. Well, we're going to find him really as, as a prisoner from the end of this chapter to the end of the book of Romans. And we see his interactions and how he dealt with that. And uh, it will be helpful to us. Uh, in this study, we're going to begin reading in verse 17 of Acts 21, read down to verse 26, and uh, Paul is coming back to Jerusalem, and uh, I was reading through this text, and I thought this is uh, going to be a little different message, because I, as we read here, we're going to find that uh, in some sense, James and the believers of the church in Jerusalem are going to in some way reprove Paul because of what they heard about what Paul was saying. And we're going to find that that was not true. And Paul is never, in, in this chapter, going to vindicate himself. But I will do that this morning. Uh, because what is said about Paul here is not true. And so we're going to deal with that. And so I'm going to, let me, I don't do this usually, but I'll give you the title now, then we'll read it. I'll give you the title again, then we'll do some preaching. I want to preach this morning on misunderstood and 
unvindicated. Misunderstood and unvindicated. Have you ever been misunderstood? And have not had the opportunity to vindicate yourself? That's what we find here in this chapter. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Acts 21, if you are able to, verse 17. Acts 21, 17, the Bible says, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And by the way, we've read all of it in Acts so far. A lot of it. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Now, it would have been good if they just stopped right there. But they didn't. Notice what they says. And said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, that we may say to thee, We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly, and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. I want to bring your attention to verse 21. Notice the first few words, and they are informed of thee. James, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, with the elders of the church there, are gathered around, and they say to Paul, we've been informed that you've been saying this. Now, we, I'm going to preach here on what they were informed of. It was not true. But I don't find anywhere in this passage where Paul says it's not true. He doesn't confront them. But that was Paul being misunderstood. What he preached, and by the way, he talked about the circumcision. But what he said was not what, the, what they said he said. So he was misunderstood, and he was also unvindicated. And let me just say at the onset, all of us at some point are going to be misunderstood. And, and at times we may not even have the opportunity to vindicate ourselves and to say, no, 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 this is not what I've done. And sometimes we have to live satisfied with saying, God knows. And God will vindicate me. And by the way, we have the Bible today, and I'm going to do, do exactly that. I'm going to vindicate Paul. I'm going to show you from his word that he did not say those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. 
We pray that you would give us understanding according to your word and help us, Lord, to identify here what is going on, but also help us to take those things and to apply it to our lives that we might be helped by those truths. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to glance over the first few verses we read here just a moment ago, and we're going to find as we progress through those verses that, uh, by the way, Paul has been anticipating to come to Jerusalem back since really chapter 18. He had, uh, at the end of his second missionary journey, he had gone through Jerusalem and gone back to Antioch and then head back out. And even now he is head, uh, planning to go back to Jerusalem. If you remember, uh, you read the epistles of First and Second Corinthians, Paul was actually doing something good for the believers in Jerusalem. He was collecting money for the saints. It's interesting to me that when Paul comes, nothing is said about the money that he brought. Uh, no thankfulness apart uh, from the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to find here uh, some criticism that they have of the Apostle Paul, and so none of those things are mentioned. And, and Paul is going to arrive at Jerusalem, and if you notice here on the scene, we know at the end of the chapter he's going to be uh, bound by the Jews in the temple. But when he comes, he doesn't have the best reception from the church. The believers in Jerusalem have some criticism of Paul. They're really telling him, well, you need, to, you need to prove yourself. And I'm thinking, well, they haven't read the book of Acts. It was not written at that time, but have you not heard what Paul has done? And uh, somehow the church are going to be critical and they have to have uh, Paul prove himself. And then uh, the Jews in Jerusalem who are not believers, they, they turn also against uh, Paul. And there was a, we'll find in chapter 23, there's a conspiracy. They're going to conspire to kill him. Uh, some of the Jews are going to make a vow that they would not do certain things until Paul was killed. I mean, that's how uh, intense they were about Paul. And so the, uh, the reception here is not the best as he comes to Jerusalem. The Bible says he was received gladly of the brethren in verse 17. And, and the day following Paul, verse 18 says, he went unto James. And back in chapter 15, if you remember... Uh, James, we identify him as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And here it seems that James, as the pastor, he convenes the elders of the church and he says, All right, come, let's have this meeting with the Apostle Paul. And notice in this meeting, James is there and all the elders were present. Now, the way it is worded, the Bible says, The day following Paul went in, uh, uh, went in with us unto James. It seems that Paul was going there just to meet with James. <laughs> But James evidently had convened the elders. Why? Because he wanted to say something to Paul. And so this meeting, I don't think, was what Paul had planned. And we see here in verse 19, And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Now we read here at the onset, we, we've read in the book of Acts, so uh, we could give the summary here, what did Paul say? Well, he probably said what we read in the book of Acts. Here is the earth where I went, uh, Asia Minor, uh, the ministry I've had in Macedonia and Achaia. I went all the way to Corinth and then came back. Even in Ephesus, God opened a door and so we could trace back all that happened in the book of Acts. And Paul no doubt recounted that. And notice now, we know wherever Paul went, some Jews got saved in certain places. But here he speaks specifically what God has done among the Gentiles because the Apostle Paul is known as the Apostle to the Gentiles from his call in Acts chapter 9 God said, I'm calling you to be a light unto the Gentiles. 
And that's what Paul was to do. Now, it didn't mean that he didn't minister to Jews. That's what he went first to preach in the synagogues and then preach to the Gentiles. That was the pattern. And so he's declaring what God has done. And I like what the Bible says. He declared particularly what things God had wrought. You see, that's the wonderful thing about God and His work. It is the work that God is doing. Paul didn't say, I'm going to show you the things that I have done among the Gentiles. No, this is what God has done. Uh, By the way, remember when he uh, 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 convened the elders of Ephesus, he brought them together and he told them uh, to feed the church of God. Um, And to feed the, the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseer. And so we know that that's always been Paul's spirit and Paul's attitude towards the work of God, and it should be our attitude as well. Uh, We know 1 Corinthians says that we, as believers, we are co-laborers together with God, but it is not our work, it is His work. We just have an opportunity to get in on what God is doing, and that's a a privilege to be able to do that. So let's get involved. That's, That's the point. Amen? Let's get involved in serving God. He is worthy of our service. And so verse 20 says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And so, as I mentioned here, we, if, we, if, we, if we stop right there, so far we say everything is going really well. Uh, the, they hear of the reports of what Paul has done, uh, perhaps the summary of his third missionary journey, and now they, they heard it, and they're glorifying God. Uh, but notice, I, I sense here that this glorifying God is going to be a little bit wrought away with Uh, by what they're going to say to the Apostle Paul. Now, he had just said, this is what God has done. Well, what are they going to say? God be not glorified? Well, no, they're not going to say that. Uh, They say, well, God be glorified. Uh, But the Bible says, and. Do you notice? And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, and we might be anticipating here if we converse and we say, well, I had the opportunity to serve the Lord and do this, and it was wonderful, and someone might hear that and say, praise the Lord. But you know what? You, you know, there's, there's an interruption here. What is this interruption about? Well, he talked about God's work among the Gentiles, and notice what they said, and said unto him, thou seest, brother. Now, that's a warning when you see that word, right? In the conversation now, brother we got something to say to you. Well, we'll rejoice with what God has done, but let, let us give you our, uh, our thoughts. How many thousands of Jews there are which believe? And they are all zealous of the law. Now, let me just interrupt here. Do you notice here the, the, the contrast? I don't see, uh, and by the way, that's true for uh, Paul's ministry, I don't see anywhere where Paul talks about numbers. You'll see many believed, uh, some rejected. You'll you'll find that type of language. But here, uh, when they hear about the work that God has done among the Gentiles, all of a sudden, James and the elders are saying, well, there's been many Jews that have been saved as well. Thousands, as a matter of fact. See how that comes across? They're not really glorifying in God what He's done with the Gentiles. They say, well, many Jews have been saved too. Are you unconcerned for the Jews? Now, we know, if you know anything about the New Testament that Paul was not unconcerned for the Jews. We know that. I mean, read Romans 9, 10, 11. Uh, read uh, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians where he, he wanted to make himself a castaway so that his brothers in the flesh, 
his fellow Jews might be saved. I don't think anybody had a greater burden for the Jews than Paul did. But they almost come across as saying, well, there's been many thousands of Jews that have been saved. Uh, and notice here where they're going here. They're, they're building something. They're, they're um, ascribing the wrong motives to Paul. Uh, it seems that he's unconcerned about the Jews, only concerned about the Gentiles, which was not true. Uh, and he said, now the Jews, they are all zealous of the law, those who believe. Now we're talking about believers. Verse 21, and they are informed of thee, those Jews that believed, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. So here, uh, they, they, we get to the bottom of it. They are informed. And evidently, we know that Paul, wherever he went, by the way, this conversation has happened in the book of Acts already. You remember back, turn back with me to Acts chapter 15. You remember what had happened back in Acts chapter 15? Um, <clears throat> now, let's just try to think about this book alone, the book of Acts, so far his ministry among, he had already had a meeting with the elders at Jerusalem. They had already had a discussion about the circumcision. And by the way, they had cleared the air. They had settled the truth. What was the issue? Well, Acts 15 verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now evidently, some Jews that had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ went up to the church of Antioch and they had told the Gentiles there, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, Paul, when he got, came back from his missionary journey, he heard that and he said, what? They said, what? You have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And so Paul went down to Jerusalem. He took Barnabas with him. He gathered the church, James, and the elders of the church of Jerusalem. And he said, what is this that we've done? And by the way, the conclusion that they make is, we never sent those men to go up to Antioch and to teach that. We, we never said any of that. And so they send word uh, through uh, Silas. He goes up to Antioch and said, look, nobody was sent by the church of Jerusalem telling you Gentiles that you need to be circumcised uh, as Moses instructed. Okay, so that, already, that has already been settled. Now, it was settled, if you notice, um, verse 6 of uh, Acts 15. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this manner. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should bear the word of the gospel and believe and God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us and put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they and so here it says so salvation is by grace Period. It's not, it has nothing to do with the circumcision. And so they cleared that. Peter did. James did. He spoke up. Paul uh, convened with them. And so they clear the air. Salvation is by grace through faith. Nothing else. Circumcision is not involved. Okay. You remember what, uh, what, what had Paul said about Moses? If you remember, go back to one, one page over in Acts chapter 13. Uh, he was preaching here and 
Notice what he says to them in Acts 13, verse 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, now he's talking about Christ, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. So there you go. Now, part of the law of Moses was the circumcision. That was part of the law. And he says that you cannot be justified by the circumcision. It's by Jesus Christ that you're justified by believing in him. And so this has already been established in the book of Acts. And so we ask ourselves here, so we come to Acts chapter 21. We see, well, uh, they've been informed that Paul has been telling the Jews that they should not circumcise their children. He never said that. All that he said in the book of Acts that we see is you can't be saved. By being circumcised. That's what he said. You become a, a, a child of God by virtue of being justified by faith. So you cannot, it's not, it doesn't come by the observation of the law. Now, we understand that early on there would be uh, you know, two types of people in the church. There would be Jews and there would be Gentiles. And both of them believed and both of them would come with their own background. For the Gentiles, some of the things that they struggled with was meat offered to idols and, and so forth, those types of things. And, and, uh, and the Jews, right, they have in the background th their traditions and, and the law. And so understand here that, uh, that uh, uh, Paul didn't uh, cater to any group. He said, uh, you know, now a Jew, the circumcision, it, it will not save you, but it's not wrong to circumcise your children. Right? He never said it was wrong to do that. He never commanded them not to do that. He just said to the Gentiles, you don't have to circumcise your children. But some people, they hear that and say, oh, so you're telling that to the Jews too. No, no, I'm just saying that to the Gentiles. They don't have to do that in order to be saved. If you want to continue to do that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't look down on the Gentile if he doesn't do what you do. So you had those two groups and what the Jew had to understand is you, you cannot be saved by that. And what the Gentile had to understand is that you don't need to add those things in order to be saved. Now, what did Paul write? There's some details about it. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 2. Um, what did Paul say here? So he, he gives some details in chapter 2. <clears throat> if you read chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, he describes the... the the, the condition of the Gentile world outside of God. Uh, no law, right? They, they don't have the Old Testament. Uh, they, they may deny a creator. They, uh, they uh, have been given over unto uncleanness and vile affection and so on and so forth. And, and he goes into chapter 2 and then he deals with the Jew. And he says, look, I said, now you, you think that you're judging the Gentiles, but you're really doing the same thing. Now, were they doing the same thing physically? No, in the sense that, you remember what Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart already. And so the Jew would say, well, as long as I have not committed the act of adultery, I'm good, I'm without sin. That's what the Gentiles do. And Paul writes to the church at Rome, who has both Jews and Gentiles, and he says, no, you're just as guilty as they are. You're, you're not any better than them. As a matter of fact, he says... Um, in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For there is no respect of persons with God. 
God does not respect persons because, oh, look, the Jews are circumcised. They deserve to be saved. The Gentiles are not. They don't. Des- no, God does not respect our persons. And so he says, notice verse 17. Here's where he deals with the Jews. So Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Here's what Paul said about the circumcision that was misunderstood. He said this, verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. And by the way, that's back to chapter 1. You're an instructor. You're telling the Gentiles how they ought to live their lives, right? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You're an instructor of the fools. You tell them, look, that's not what God says is the design for life and for marriage and all those things. You have that. You're an instructor of the foolish. A teacher of babes which has the form of knowledge and of the truth and the law. Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that, save, uh, that, that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Now again, the standard of the law, not just the letter, the spirit of the law, is much higher than the act. That's what he's saying here. Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Is there anything else in your life that's before God? Then you are an idolater. Verse 23, Thou that makest thy boast of the law, uh, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. And here he gets in the circumcision. So they have the law. They sense that they are instructors of those who do not have the law. And so here it says to, to the circumcised, verse 25, For circumcision uh, verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now what is he saying here? He's saying, he just showed them by asking the question, You have broken God's law. So do you think by virtue of the fact that you are circumcised, that means that God is not going to regard when you break the law simply because you are circumcised? Verse 26, therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, now he's talking about the Gentiles, right? They, are, they were called the uncircumcision. They of the uncircumcision. That's the Gentiles. What if they keep the law? Shall not his circumcision be counted for circumcision? In other words, what is he saying? He said, if you're circumcised and you break the law, but the Gentile is not circumcised, but he keeps the law. Who's better? See, you break the law, And you're okay with it because you're circumcised. And you're so conceited that even if the child kept the law better than you, you would deem him as unworthy because he's not circumcised. Verse 27. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So what was he say? He said, you know what I'm interested with? The circumcision of the heart. I do everything that the Jew is supposed to do. Yeah, but, but what about your heart? You break the law and you think that just because you're circumcised then the Gentile over here is, is, uh, is unworthy. And so, 
The question then is, okay, well, verse chapter 3. So what's the point? What advantage hath the Jew then? Notice the question, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul anticipates the question. If the Jew is no better, though he has the law and the circumcision and all those things, what, what's the advantage then of the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? So why does the Jew do the, why does he do the circumcision if there's no profit? That's a good question, by the way. Why does he do that? If he's no better than the Gentile. Much every way, chiefly, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. They have the oracles of God. They have the word. They know the truth from God. For what if some, verse 3, did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. It is written, Thou that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we have slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say. See, there is that slander. People have misinterpreted what Paul has been saying about the circumcision. He never told him not to do it. He just told him, he said, that doesn't make you better. It doesn't make you where you don't, uh, where you're not going to be condemned. The circumcision doesn't mean that you don't need Jesus Christ. Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? And here's verse 9. Here's what he says. Here's what the conclusion of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3. What, shall, uh, what then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Okay. Here is what Paul said. He didn't say... To the Jews, stop circumcising your children, stop observing the law of Moses. He just, say, he just simply told them, the circumcision just simply means you're still under sin, whether you have the circumcision or not. It doesn't make you holier than the Gentile. It doesn't absolve you of God's condemnation. And just because you haven't done the act, as you criticize the Gentile to have done the act, you're just as guilty under the spirit of the law. Now, remember what he said in Acts chapter 13 when Paul was preaching to the Jews. He says, no one could keep the law of Moses perfectly. Who could fool themselves and say, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've done every, every one of those things. And, and by the way, Paul admitted that in Romans 7. Remember when he said, now in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about the law. He says, I was... A Hebrew of the Hebrew, a tribe of the Benjamin, concerning the law of Pharisee, blameless. He went on and on. And then, but then in Romans 7, he says, he says, you know, I had not known the law, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Well, what is covetousness? Desiring your neighbor's house, desiring your neighbor's wife. Right? The listen is Exodus chapter 20. He says, oh, when, when, when covetousness fell, my mouth was stopped. I became guilty. I became helpless. And I recognized that I could not fulfill the law of God. I thought I had. I thought I was. 
but I was not in need. So, notice, they were informed wrong. All that Paul was saying is that circumcision does not justify you. It cannot. Now you have an advantage. You have the oracles of God. You have the word of God. But it doesn't mean you're sinless. You're just as guilty as those who live outside of God's word. Okay. That's what Paul's now. We could go to the book of Galatians. He deals with that in, because that was the conflict in the churches. And by the way, there would be also conflict on the other side. That's why uh, when he wrote to the church at Colossians, don't let anybody judge you by the Sabbath days and the new moons, all those things. Why? Because maybe some of the Jews are trying to put pressure. Well, what about the observing of the Sabbath? And what about the feast? Now, if, if the Jew observed those feasts, you say, well, is that wrong? Is that wrong in and itself? He says, well, I mean, you can observe the feast, but don't judge your brother who doesn't want to observe the feast. And tell your brother that, you know, and say, well, we just want to, uh, aren't we to thank the Lord in this feast? Well, you can do that. He didn't say, don't observe the feast. He didn't say, don't be circumcised. He just told him, he says, that's not the standard. We are under liberty. But we, we are under a new law, not the law of Moses, but the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, go back to Acts chapter 21. I know that was a big detour. So, uh, Acts 21, uh, 21, verse 21, he says, And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. <clears throat> verse 22. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. You're in for it, Paul. Everybody's heard what you've been teaching. You've been teaching the Jews that they shouldn't circumcise their children. You will not find that anywhere, what Paul said. None of his epistles did he say that. Uh, none of his preaching in the book of Acts did he say any of that. As a matter of fact, they already had settled the issue in Acts chapter 15 before the church in Jerusalem. And so they're saying, now you're in for it, Paul. So you need to prove yourself. That's really what they're saying. If you notice, uh, he says, verse 23, Do therefore this that we may say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they are informed concerning thee are nothing. <laughs> By the way, he never vindicates himself. He never said that. But he says, well, prove that what you said was nothing. He didn't say that. Right? We know that. But that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So here's the question. Okay, is Paul going to do it? Is he going to keep the law? Now, what, what is this reference about? Well, he, he's mentioning here the vows that uh, four of the men, four men evidently in the church, had a vow on them. Now, let me try to explain here some background here. A vow at that time, and really that's a, it's a, really an Old Testament practice. Uh, a, a vow was basically a solemn promise made to God 
regarding anything. It didn't have to be anything specific. But we find, for example, Jacob making a vow to God in Genesis 28 when he says, What God blesses me with, I will give back a tenth. I make a vow to give back a tenth of what God blesses me with. God didn't ask him to make a vow. He just made a vow to God. Uh, making a vow to the Lord was considered a very serious thing. And actually, Moses addressed it in the law. For example, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, he said this, And when thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. If you vow out to God and you don't follow through, that's sin. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. Okay. Now, what is this about? Now, by the way, Jesus, Jesus put it this way in the New Testament. I believe the principle is good there because what? Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. That's what, really what it is in a nutshell. But the Old Testament practice of a vow went like this. It was one, by the way, one of the most well-known vows was that of the Nazarite vow. Now, this vow meant that, for example, a man would abstain from wine, uh, he, from all intoxicating liquors. It also meant that he would let his hair grow and that he would not enter any house that, been, that had been polluted by a dead body and also that he would not attend a funeral. So that's an example. Such vows would last anywhere from eight days to a month, or to a predetermined time period. And in certain cases, a vow would last a lifetime. Now, when the vow would expire, let's say if it was a weak vow, in the next week, I'm going to vow this to God, uh, what would happen is when that vow would expire, the priest then would, they would go to the priest, the priest would make an offering, a he lamb, on the burnt offering, and then a she lamb for an expiatory sacrifice, and a ram for a peace offering. After the offering, the priest would shave the head of the one who had made a vow at the door of the tabernacle, and then he would take the hair that he had shaved off, and he would burn it on the altar. Those whose vows had been fulfilled that did not have access to the priest or the tabernacle would cut their hair where they were and they would continue to observe the vow until they reached the temple. That's why uh, uh, Paul shaved his head, remember, when he was in Sancria, when he had made a vow. I guess that, that vow had been fulfilled and so he shaved his head there. Now, this was a common practice among the Jews. They would make a vow to God in an expression of gratitude or devotedness to God's service. And it's mentioned in the law. Uh, this often happened after they uh, either had been raised from sickness or if they had been delivered from danger or some calamity. Often they would go through something like that and they would say, I'm going to make a vow to God. And it was a sign of gratitude. So it's mentioned, we have examples in the Old Testament, and, and we see that practice, some explanation given in the book of Deuteronomy. Now here's the question here. Why did Paul make a vow, and what was Paul's vow? And I'm, I'm going to shock you here. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say, uh, therefore we don't need to speculate. I know sometimes you feel like, well, you've got to have the answers. The Bible doesn't say. So I will not speculate. 
Now, if you know something that the Bible doesn't mention, you tell me. But we don't know what the vow is. We don't know what the vow was in Acts uh, chapter 18 when he shaved his head off. We don't know. He had a vow, though. And he observed that Jewish custom. So let's go deeper into that question. Why did he make a vow if he's not under the law? I mean, why would he be concerned with that? I'm glad you asked that question. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The, the epistles are really helpful to answer those questions. 1 Corinthians and chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, notice with me down if you... Uh, let's begin reading in verse... Well, you could read the whole chapter, but... In verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Now, all those questions, basically, he's setting up the stage. He says, uh, am I not free? What, what are you saying? To do what I want to do? To make my own decision? Am I not an apostle? I'm free to follow the Lord's leading and all those things. And so, um, verse 2, If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless uh, I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this, Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and, and Cephas, or I only, and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? And he's asking all this question. He's setting the stage for what? Well, he says, look, we can make our own decisions. We are free. But uh, go down with me to verse uh, 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is me, if I preach not the gospel. So here he, he basically says, look, I'm free. I can do what I want. I'm an apostle of the Gentiles and so on. Everybody's free. You can eat. You can drink. You do what you want. But here he speaks of how the gospel had to be urgently proclaimed. There, there was an urgency about the gospel. He says, necessity is laid upon me. I must preach the gospel. Was he free not to preach the gospel? Yeah. But he felt a strong urge and necessity to do it. Verse 17. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. And here it is, verse 19. Notice what he says. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant to who? All. To do what? That I might gain the more. All. So, he first talked about how the gospel was to be urgently proclaimed, but then he says the gospel... The gospel itself, because it, need to, it needs to be urgently proclaimed, it's made me a servant to all. Now, I'm free not to serve anybody. I'm free. But the gospel itself has made me a servant to all. Notice verse 20. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain... The Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, 
uh, that I might gain them that are under the law. That, that's the Jew. Verse 21, to them that are without law, Romans 1, the Gentiles, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, to Christ, uh, that I might gain them that are without law. So notice verse 22. So here's what he says. So to the Jew, I became as a Jew, and to the Gentile, I became as a Gentile. Now, what, is it, what does that mean? That, does that mean that uh, when he was to the Jew, he says, all right, the way you're saved, Jew, is by being circumcised. And then he would go to the Gentiles and say, all right, Gentiles, the way that you're saved is by faith, by grace through faith. That's not what he did. We know that. We saw that. And it doesn't mean that, well, you know what? Uh, whatever the Jews' culture is, I'm going to be involved in sin with them so that I can win them. And then when the Gentiles, I'm going to be uh, involved in all their lifestyle and the behavior so I can win. That's not what he's saying at all. What is he saying? Notice. Notice from the verse 22. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So here's what happened. The gospel made him all things to all men. You know what that means? That with regards to the vow, if Paul made a vow and the Jews knew about it, he fulfilled that vow. When he was with a Jew, he became as a Jew. When he was with a Gentile, well, you know, he, he didn't tell them, right, well, let me teach you about the ceremonies of, of the Jews and how you need to be circumcised and, and, and all those things. No, that, that was not part of salvation. And so would Paul have instructed, hey, if you're a Jew, yeah, you can still circumcise your children. Sure, he would have said that. He wouldn't have told the Jew, don't circumcise your child. To the Jew, he became as a Jew. But then to the Gentile, he says, you don't have. You see, that's two standards for two different group of people. Jew, you can circumcise your child. Now, it doesn't save you. It will not save your child. Gentiles, you don't have to circumcise two different things. But he became all things to all men. You see, the gospel made him all things to all men. See, mother, is Paul confused? No. Paul has one chief interest. The gospel of Christ. And he is willing, he is willing to make himself a servant for all, for the gospel's sake. Notice there's even more. He says, um, verse 23, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of that with you. So here it is. I do all this. Why? What for what purpose? Because I don't want to offend the Jew. I don't want to offend. No, for the gospel's sake. I'm interested in the salvation of the lost. Verse 22, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that we may obtain. Now we often quote the verse, but here's the context of the, those verses. Verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away. Here's the last thing. Fourth, the gospel, the gospel, he says, is worthy of sacrifice. 
He's talking about the race and he's talking about what? He's talking about temperance and he's talking about bringing his body into subjection. He says, you know the athlete, he sacrifices. He's willing to go through pain. Why? Because he has a carnal reward at the end of the road. He's looking at a temporal reward. I said, but we're looking at an eternal reward. And so here's what Paul's saying. Why was Paul a Jew to the Jew and a Gentile to the Gentile? It's not double personality. He just didn't do things that would offend the Jew and he didn't do things that would uh, offend the Gentile. And by the way, we'll see that later because when, when uh, the high priest strikes Paul in a few chapters and Paul uh, turns around and insults him personally and somebody says, don't you know that's the high priest? Says, oh, forgive me. I didn't know it was the high priest. Why would he say that? The man struck him unfairly. Well, because he was the high priest. And he didn't speak like that to the high priest. And so he didn't want to offend the Jew. See, that's what we're talking about. So here's what we learn. But why did Paul, why would he keep a Jewish vow? Does he know that he's no longer under the law? To the Jew, he became a Jew. So the gospel was to be urgently proclaimed. The gospel made him a servant to all. The gospel made him all things to all men. And the gospel, he says, is worthy of my sacrifice. You go into chapter 10, notice verse 23. He says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is said before you, eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not, the, uh, eat not for their sake uh, that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judge of another man's conscience? Well, what is he saying? If I would do something that I know would offend somebody, that it would, they would feel that that would violate their conscience. I'm not going to do it. Now, let me give you the example in the circumcision because that's the example we're talking about. Paul would have never said to the Jews, do not circumcise your children. Why? Because he knew that would offend them. Now, let me ask you this. Is it wrong for the Jew to circumcise his child? It's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that practice. Now, he should not believe that that will save this child. But there's nothing wrong with the practice itself. So Paul would have never said that. He would have never offended them. And on the other side, he would have never told the Gentiles, you should circumcise your children. He would have never said, why? Because he knew that that would offend them. Why? Because he's been preaching salvation by grace through faith. And now you're telling us, Paul, that we have to be circumcised like the Jews are? That's offensive. And so that's what we're talking about. Now, there's many things that that was over. Meats, the observant of special days, all that stuff. And he's basically telling the church in all of those epistles, don't look down on your brother and sister in Christ and judge them somehow as less than you, less worthy than you, and all those things. And so here Paul is strictly talking about the gospel. The gospel is worthy of our sacrifice. And so let's ask ourselves this question then. Okay, Paul... I think we have some insight. Back to chapter 21. Why did Paul never vindicate himself? That's a good question. 
Why did he never say, I never said that. I never told uh, the Jews that they ought not to circumcise their children. I've never said that. He never said that. Why? Because he knew that everything he did was for the gospel's sake. He did it for the Lord. He didn't do it to impress men. He knew that the gospel made him a servant to all. And so he knew that to the Jew he became a Jew, to the Gentile he became a Gentile. And he knew by his own life testimony that he was willing to be sacrificial in his life for the gospel's sake. And so if men misunderstood him or judged him in a way that was not in in accordance to the truth, he did not need to vindicate himself. Sometimes if we have a strong urge, says, well, I need to vindicate myself. Somebody said something about me and I need to vindicate myself. Does God know the truth? Does God know the truth? He does. Don't feel that it is necessary for you to vindicate yourself. Well, I'm going to tell them. Let me ask you this. Did you do what you do to be accepted of men? Or did you do what you did to be accepted of God? Why does Paul not need to vindicate himself? Because he didn't do it for James. He didn't do it for the elders in Jerusalem. That's not what motivated him. I want to impress them. That's why I became a Jew to the Jew. Because I wanted to impress James and all the Jews in Jerusalem that believed. No, that's not why he did what he did. He did what he did for the Lord and for the gospel's sake. The rest is in the hands of the Lord. So this is me vindicating Paul, a man that didn't need to vindicate himself. And we might get to times in our lives where we, we, we are misunderstood, where what we do, what we say is misunderstood. You don't necessarily need to vindicate yourself. Be satisfied with you knowing and saying, I've done this and I've said this because I know it's the truth and because God would be pleased with me. Not because I'm seeking approval among men. You know, today, people may come to this church. And by the way, I get a lot of those emails. Um, sometimes they'll take a small portion of what I said in a service. And then they'll send me a long email about a misrepresentation of what I said. And I'll tell you, I don't answer those emails. Now my flesh wants to write back and tell me and tell them the what for. And you know what? I don't need to vindicate myself. If I believe I preach the truth from the Word of God, somebody may misunderstand it. I don't need to vindicate myself. God knows. God knows. And so I think that sometimes we may engage too much in the activity of the flesh. And maybe it could be that because we have the wrong motive for it. Because if you're trying to please people and you're serving God for the sake of people, then when something is misunderstood, you're like, oh, I've got to make things right. Because I need people's approval. Somebody may say, well, they're, 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 they're at First Day Baptist Church. They're legalists. Well, we know what legalism is. Legalism is adding works to salvation. We don't believe that. But if I mention, well, we need to live a holy life as God commanded us, legalist! No. 
I've never preached that salvation is by works of any kind. But yet, and I preach sometimes, and people say, Oh, you say that believers ought to live that way. You're a legalist. I don't need to vindicate that. I preach the truth from God's Word. And so, let's take the example of Paul. You know, do you think that Paul maybe had the, the, the pedigree as a believer? Now, I know what he said about himself. He was not worthy to be called an apostle. He was less than least of all the saints. I know he, he didn't think of himself, but if anybody had the backing to be able to stand up to those uh, elders in Jerusalem and James, he could have, but he didn't. You know what that is? I'll give you one word and we're done. Meekness. Power under control. Why? Because it is satisfied with God's will. Doing God's will. 